What is good, everybody? We got we got another episode today, and I'm, I'm going to tell you, if you've been following along throughout Romans 11, you know it's been a long one, but we are almost there. We got one more episode after this, and we're going to be done with Romans 11. But you know what? I'm not I'm not sad that it took us so long because there was a lot of things that needed to be covered and understood because Paul makes a lot of analogies about some things that some of us don't really know about, myself included, like grafting trees, for instance. And it was important for us to break that down. And Paul's going to continue on with this whole tree analogy, and there's going to be some good gems for us, some things that we can really learn. But we're not going to have too long of a crazy intro. We're hopping straight into it. We're getting through Romans chapter 11, verses 23 through 27. Like we always do, we're going to read through the passage that we're going to be looking at, and then we will break it down verse by verse. So Paul starts in verse 23. He says, And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written, The Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. All right, we're getting through some good stuff today. Let's hop straight into verse 23 and start picking this apart. Once again, Paul says, And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. Okay, so when Paul says they... Uh, If we went back a few verses in the last little passage of Romans 11, we would understand that they here means Israel. Paul's talking about Israel. Israel, or Paul's saying that, hey, if at any point Israel stops their unbelief and they choose to start believing in Christ and they choose to start bearing this good fruit, then God has the power to graft them back in. Like God wants to graft them back in and he has the power to do so. But what's interesting to me is how God gives us the freedom and ability. Because we're the branches, right? In this whole analogy, the root would be the foundation that's set with the patriarchs and, and whatnot. And the branches that are being grafted in and being cut off, that is God's people, humanity, mankind. And to me, it it's interesting how much freedom and ability... God gives us the branches to choose and and to make decisions. Because typically, if we're just talking about grafting trees naturally, when you cut a branch from a tree in order to graft in a new branch, if that old branch is dead, if it's not bearing any fruit, it becomes useless. And, And to me, this is where Paul's analogy of grafting in the trees, this is really where it works great. Not only does it call us to see comparisons between God's tree of life that he is constantly grafting and and growing, and natural grafting, not just that comparison, 
And, and, and if you'll remember, we talked about some of these comparisons in two episodes ago, how the importance of grafting and why you do it is because you increase the production of fruit, you produce similar fruit, which is a good thing. And also the branches that are being grafted in, they need the root to survive. If you haven't listened to that episode yet, go back. It's two episodes ago talking about grafting. Um, it'll really help you understand what Paul is saying in Romans 11. So not only does Paul make this analogy to bring comparisons between what God is doing with his new tree of life and what we normally do with trees naturally, but this analogy also highlights the contrasts between what God is doing with the tree of life and what you cannot do with a normal tree. For example, unlike a natural branch being cut off, the branches on God's tree are able to produce a fruit of belief and then be grafted back in. This is what's weird, right? Because normally, I got this from a website called homeguides.sfgate.com. They talk about tree grafting. Normally, on a natural tree, whenever a branch is already dead, you cannot regraft it back. They say this, they say if the wood still appears dead or if the exposed surface of the branch end still attached to the tree is dead, the branch cannot be reattached. So what is this telling us? That if you if you take off a branch, right, the branch isn't bearing fruit, you take it off, you start grafting other branches in and then all of a sudden you say, hey, you know what, I might want to bring back in this original branch. If that branch is not bearing fruit, if that branch is already dead, you cannot graft it back into the tree because it's already dead. It's unable to be brought back to life and it's unable to bear any fruit. It would just be dead weight. And so what Paul is saying here is actually quite genius. Paul is highlighting God's just immense power over his creation because we have to remember, although God has inserted himself into the natural world by means of Jesus and the incarnation, God can still do what we believe is unnatural. Because Paul's telling us here, hey, you know, uh, these branches that were cut off from the tree because they were basically dead, not producing fruit. Paul says that if they decide that they want to start believing and producing fruit, God can bring a dead branch back into his tree and give it life again. And in that case, that would be unnatural for a normal tree here on earth. But, but God would have the power to do something that otherwise is unnatural. And, and if God can bring Christ back from the dead, and if Paul, like he has told us in uh, earlier chapters in Romans, that we have new life in Christ, then it makes sense that these dead branches in God's tree of life that he cut off, that if, if they bear the good fruit and they choose life through Christ, God can restore them back into the tree. This is, this is contrasting God's power and in, in human's power. Because if we had a normal tree and we had a dead branch that we cut off in order to graft a new one in, we can't just grab that dead branch and put it back on the tree and expect it to do anything. But God can. This is the power of Paul using two things that are familiar, grafting trees and, and doing all of these things and making an analogy to not only bring comparison to, to 
trigger your mind to see what God is doing. But it also brings contrast to show you God is far more powerful and he is able to do what we think is impossible or unnatural. If he can bring Jesus back from the dead and give new life, then isn't he able to resuscitate these dead branches and graft them back in if that's what they want? That's what Paul is getting at here. On to verse 24, he says, For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree, and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? So real quick, when Paul is... the the people that Paul is talking to when he says, hey, you were cut from a wild olive tree and grafted in contrary to nature, that's the Gentiles. The Gentiles were not a part of this natural tree. They're a part of a wild olive tree and God grafted them in. And so Paul's saying, how much more do you think God wants to, to graft back his natural branches? Like, of course, that's what God wants to do. And Paul is reminding the Gentiles that this tree of life that they're being grafted into, this was not their original tree. He's practically saying, hey, Gentiles, you were not from the seed of Abraham. You were not given the Torah. You were not originally included in the promise. You lived amongst your sinful desires, separate from Yahweh. And despite all that, God still had the power and the love for you to graft you in. So if that's the case, then for the Gentiles, Paul is basically saying, don't you think if all that is true about you, that Yahweh would desire to see his own original covenant partners, the Jews, the Israelites, don't you think he would want them to be grafted back into their own uniquely crafted tree? And what this does is it serves as a reminder to the Gentiles that you should count yourself blessed. <laughs> you, you don't really belong on this tree, not by nature, but but God's bringing you in. And it's also a reminder to Israel, to the Jews, look, God has not abandoned you. And it's not like God is just handing out, um, you know, sympathy participation trophies to the Jews because he would much rather have the Gentiles. It's not that at all. It's not that God is just extending mercy for sake of mercy to let the uh, the Jews come back in. But this is what God wants. God desires for Israel to be grafted back in despite all that they have done against him. God wants nothing more than to see his original covenant partners find their way back into his tree of life. On to verse 25, Paul says, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So Israel's heart, or at least a portion of it, has been hardened towards the gospel of Christ. That's what Paul's telling us. And because of this, it led to the Gentiles receiving salvation. And by this point in Paul's letter, we should have this ingrained in our mind. 
Because at this point, Paul has used this repeated theme of hardening, rejection, salvation being given to the Gentiles, and restoration of the Jews. He has had this repeated theme of those four things for like the last eight chapters. So we should be picking up on this repetition that Paul is using because he's using this repetition for a reason. One thing I've come to learn is that biblical authors and in, 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 in their narratives, especially in the Old Testament, they use repetition to get you to see certain things that otherwise you wouldn't. Repetition is really important. And oftentimes it can seem redundant, especially if you're reading through some of the uh, the poetic um, writings in the Old Testament. If you look in Psalms or in Proverbs, a lot of times you'll just see the same you know, words and the same phrases over and over. And a lot of times it can seem redundant and seem like it doesn't have any purpose, but the authors use repetition for a very important reason because they want to call you. They want to call your attention to the point they're trying to make. Uh, here's an example. If you read through the first four chapters of Genesis, you will find a repeated theme and a repeated word of good and somebody seeing something good. If you look through Genesis 1, you have, um, I believe it's seven to eight times where God sees what he has done. He sees the work of his hands and he saw that it was good. And then starting in chapter two of Genesis, God creates a man and he sees that it's good. And then he sees that it's not good for man to be alone. So he creates man, a woman. And so up until this point in the Genesis narrative, multiple times we have been told that God is seeing things that are good and the things that he sees that are good are very important to human life being able to flourish. And so the author of Genesis, if we catch on to this idea of God seeing things that are good and God being the one who sees uh, things that are not good, we come to this realization by seeing the repetition that God is the one that determines what is good and what is not good. And then when we go to the narrative of Eve being deceived by the snake, what do we what do we hear? We hear that Eve saw the tree and it was desirable and it looked good to her eyes. And the first time that a human is the one seeing something as good, we quickly find out that it is not actually good and it brings death and destruction. And so what is the author trying to tell us by this repetition of the word good and seeing things that are good? The repetition is meant to call our attention to the fact that God is the decider of what is good and what is not good. And when humanity tries to usurp that power from God and determine what is good in our own eyes, it causes us to fall into sin and it brings destruction. That's just one of thousands of cases of repetition in the Bible that these authors use because they want to call you to something specific. So there's a little tidbit for you. If you didn't know that, just pay attention as you're reading throughout the Bible, whatever you're reading through, notice repetition. Notice certain repeated themes or words or phrases and look at it and say, okay, how do these compare? How do these contrast? And what is the author trying to get me to see? 
So Paul is doing this throughout almost his entire letter of Romans, talking about hardening, rejection, salvation for the Gentiles, and restoration of the Jews. And not only does he explicitly tell us what the repetition means, but the way that he tracks the things like hardening and the Gentiles receiving the gospel, it explains his point. So what do we know about hardening just from reading Paul's letter to the Romans? Well, we learn that, unfortunately, it's not that good of a thing for the person involved. Most times it ends up disastrous for those who choose to be hardened. It's their choice, but it's still disastrous. We know that this hardening causes pain and suffering, not only on the person being hardened or the group being hardened, but also those around them. We can look at Romans 9, when Paul talks about Pharaoh. You see how he's hardened. Not only does it negatively affect him, but it negatively affects Egypt and his people, right? We can look at Israel, Israel being hardened, just like Paul is telling us uh, here in verse 25. And because of their hardening, not only are they missing out on salvation, not only are they uh, just continuing to live in their own sin before God, but their hardening also led to the death of Jesus Christ, and it also led to the persecution of many Christians. Paul's included in that. So this is the portrait of hardening that Paul invokes, that Paul is calling us to see through the repetition of the word hardening and the theme of hardening in this letter. But that's not the end of the story. There is another party at play, and that is God. And Paul also paints a portrait of God, somewhat indirectly, but it shows us how God uses the sinful hardening of one party to bring about a greater good that otherwise would not have been realized. Think back to Pharaoh again. God is showcasing his power and authority against Pharaoh because Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And because of that, God is able to deliver his people, split the Red Sea, and from that whole line comes the law, comes the Torah, the entire narrative of the Bible, and that brings about the salvation that Jesus has given to all people, and not just Israel. Paul uses another repeated theme to call our attention to, namely that God can redeem the hardened. And Paul repeatedly, throughout his letter, reminds the Jews that although they have sinned and been hardened, God wants nothing more than to redeem them and welcome them back. This is another repeated theme, and you can track this throughout almost all the chapters in Romans. At some point in most of these, Paul is saying, hey, God has not abandoned you, Israel. You are God's chosen people. Weren't you the ones that received the promise? God has not left you. He wants to see you grafted back in. This is a repeated line of thought and a repeated theme throughout this entire letter reminding Israel, God is not done with you. God wants you back more than ever. But we can't ignore the hardening that's going on to you, Israel. Please catch on to, to catch on to the repetition I'm using. It's like Paul's is saying, Israel, please catch on to it, man. Y'all are being hardened. It's not a good thing. Look how this has affected people in the past. Look how it's affecting you now. But also catch on to my repeated insistence that God is not done with you. On to verse 26. And in this way, 
all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So Paul is quoting from two Old Testament verses in Isaiah. The first portion is Isaiah 59.20, and the second portion is Isaiah 27.9. And the whole point of why Paul quotes this is he wants to remind them that God wants his people, he wants Israel to be wiped clean of their sins. Once again, another repeated theme. But in order for that to happen, and this is the mystery that Paul is talking about, in order for that to happen, they had to first fall in order that all the nations around them, the Gentiles, would be saved. And this is triggering what Paul said in verse 11, if you go back a few episodes, that though they're, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles in order to make Israel jealous. That's kind of the goal. But why, though? Why did Israel have to fall and be jealous first? Why couldn't they have just been open to the gospel? Could that not have been a part of God's plan? Well, can I posit this? That maybe, just maybe, if we look at our own way of handling things and interacting with people and valuing the things that should be important, we tend to devalue and take for granted that which is closest and most common to us. Hence the phrase, you don't know what you got till it's gone. Or the grass ain't always greener on the other side. You know, C.S. Lewis said something similar in regards to taking things for granted when it came to mankind. He said this, and this is, this is honestly one of my favorite quote, quotes. He says, Christ takes it for granted that men are bad. Until we really feel this assumption of his to be true, Though we are part of the world he came to save, we are not part of the audience to whom his words are addressed. We lack the first condition for understanding what he is talking about. And when men attempt to be Christians without this preliminary consciousness of sin, the result is almost bound to be a certain resentment against God as to one who is always making impossible demands and always inexplicably angry. Now he uses the idea of taking things for granted a little bit differently, but it still helps drive home this point. Because the phrase take for granted has two different meanings. The The first one, which we tend to do a lot, is fail to properly appreciate someone or something, especially as a result of over-familiarity. But the way that C.S. Lewis says that Christ takes things for granted is a little bit different. And this is the second definition, and that is to assume that something is true without questioning it. So when he says that Jesus took for granted that men are bad, he's saying that Jesus assumed the truth that men are bad. We are sinful. We are evil. Jesus recognized our faults and acted accordingly. But as sinful humans... We take that for granted as well, but in the opposite sense. We fail to properly appreciate or acknowledge our utterly sinful behavior because we are so familiar with it. We take sin for granted in a way because we are so numb to it. 
And because of that, we can view God as this evil dictator who lashes out. Instead of viewing God as being a righteous judge who is dealing out just retribution. And I bring up all of this stuff about taking for granted for this one reason, that in the same way, we can take Christ for granted, assuming that our salvation will always be there. Assuming that if we act nice and we're good and we do good deeds, that we won't have to worry about our salvation. And because of that, we act in a sinful way. In Paul's whole message, in basically the last three chapters that we've been going over, has been, no, 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 no. Israel, you cannot take salvation for granted because God can and will remove you from this tree and from his family. And what Israel will soon find out, as Paul says, is that the grass is not greener on the other side. And this is why Israel, in a, in a sense, this is why Israel had to fall. They had to fail to recognize the salvation that was standing right in front of them because the gospel had to go out to the, the Gentiles. It had to, and like Paul said, I hope this makes Israel jealous because Israel thought it was greener on the other side. Israel failed to properly appreciate the Messiah that was already promised to them because they assumed that their way of living and that their man-made traditions that they brought into their religion, they assumed that that was a better way to live. And because of that, they now get to watch and see these Gentiles receiving the salvation that was meant for them. And Paul hopes that that makes them jealous, that it makes them realize that they took Christ for granted. And that maybe, just maybe, they'll decide to follow Christ so that God can graft what was once dead back into his tree of life.